0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 466 of this podcast Today is Saturday, September 10th, 2022. And in this episode, we're going to talk about Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and why women and young men were traditionally not allowed to read it. But before we get into that, I want to talk about some things in the news. First of all, there is a henge, a stone henge, that is now visible in Spain, known as the Spanish Stonehenge or the Dolmen of Guadalparal. It resembles the English Stonehenge. It's a megalithic monument thought to be about 5,000 years old. And it, due to drought in Europe right now, is visible again. It's now above the water, or rather the water is below it, and so you can clearly see it. It was first discovered, or I guess you could say rediscovered, because the people who built it certainly knew about it. But it was first discovered in the modern era in 1926, according to Wikipedia, during a research and excavation campaign led by German archaeologist Hugo Obermeier. And uh, it could have been a solar temple, they think, also was used As a burial enclave, Roman remains were found there, some various trinkets and uh, artifacts. But then it was buried or uh, submerged in 1963 when the Valdecanas Reservoir was constructed. So it's only visible when the water levels are low. And because we have had some drought conditions in the last 10 years... The monument has been visible, according to Wikipedia, in several summers. So why this is important, I think, (laughs) is because, in part, uh, it's just interesting. I think uh, archaeology in general is interesting, but it's interesting that some of these things we forget about or they're lost to time. They were very important to the people who built them, for the people who put them in place. But we scratch our heads and we don't quite know for sure, for sure, what they were up to, what they were doing, what they were thinking, what their motivations were. We have to speculate when we don't have firm written records. And that's definitely the case with Megaliths and Stonehenge and Spanish Stonehenge and all the rest. But I also bring this up because I think... Climate change alarmism is uh, liable to take something like this and say, aha, oh, oh, okay, we've got climate change, and therefore Spanish Stonehenge is visible, and that's very, very concerning. We've got reservoirs in Europe and in the U.S., which are dropping to really low levels, and we're finding things here in the U.S. We're finding dead bodies where maybe the mafia knocked off this or that person they didn't like, and threw their body in the reservoir and then the water drops and you fight you you find murder victims. You find people who've been assassinated and their remains were disposed of there. You find all kinds of strange things when the water levels drop. But I want to point out, for one, we don't fully understand why there's a drought on. I mean, we might know, okay, you know, the the air currents are carrying moisture here and there and temperature levels are rising or they're Falling in some places, the rising in others, or we're getting more or less moisture here. We could track that over time. But as to exactly why, it's a bit murky in our day because there is an agenda with climate change to say man's activity, human civilization, the modern era, the burning of fossil fuels is, if not a primary factor in climate change, it is enough of a factor that we're looking at catastrophe if we don't reverse course, if we don't stop having babies, stop getting married, stop driving cars, at least cars that are run on fossil fuels. If we don't stop electrifying our homes and heating our homes like we have been, it's going to be the end of the world as we know it. But I want to point out that there are other factors that play a huge role. And again, it's a bit murky to what extent human activity is driving this. The sun can absolutely drive this. If you have increased solar activity, decreased solar activity, there's all kinds of things that we have no control over. We do not control the dial for the sun and how it is radiating more or less or pulsing or what have you. We don't control that. God's got his hand on that dial and what we're doing here with building homes, building cars, driving around, growing food, you know, raising livestock, it's really a very, very small part in my researches. It's not to say that it plays no role, but the role that it plays is a drop of water in a swimming pool and not enough for us to go destroying ourselves, uh, trying to reverse it. There have been. I would point out droughts throughout human history and the climate has always changed. See also ice ages and maps showing that Asia used to be connected to the Americas via a land bridge or that the British Isles were formerly connected to mainland Europe. That might be part of why we see hinges in Spain and we also see hinges in the British Isles that look very similar and probably served a very similar religious function But also, too, look at the drought and famine in the book of Genesis that brought Joseph to a place of prominence in Egypt from having been wrongfully imprisoned on a false accusation from Potiphar's wife. That is to say, we have in the case of Joseph, somebody who was falsely accused because hell hath no fury like a spurned woman. Potiphar's wife wanted Joseph to lay with her. And he said, no, 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 no. And she finally got so infuriated, so upset about it, that she accused him of having tried to rape her. And then he was thrown in prison. He did not get due process. It was too convenient to dispose of him. And so he was disposed of. He was thrown in prison, even though he was an excellent young man. And there he lingered until it came to the attention of Pharaoh, that he could interpret dreams. And Pharaoh had had some very troubling dreams. And Joseph was brought out and told him the interpretation of the dream. And the interpretation of the dream was that there would be seven years of plenty, good times, prosperity, a booming economy, followed by seven years of want, seven years of famine, seven years of recession, if you will, or depression. And if you wanted to be ready, if you didn't want a whole bunch of people to die in the famine and drought and recession and depression and all that, you were going to need to save up. You were going to need to save up for those seven years and then be ready for the next seven years. you were going to need to save up during the seven years of plenty so that you were ready for the seven years of want. Now, here's a question for you. Were these uh, seven years of want due to mankind burning fossil fuels to heat and electrify their homes? Uh, Some people might be willing to say they could be. Uh, Who knows, right? Maybe the ancient Egyptians did have light bulbs and flying cars and crazy things like that. Who knows? But uh, I think the better explanation is that the climate changes, it just changes. And there might be reasons that God adjusts the thermostat for us and changes our weather here and there for judgment or to drive us in the direction that he wants us to go and to mold and shape and direct human civilization to bless or to uh, punish, you know, to bless faithfulness, to punish wickedness. But. I think it's safe to say there's no evidence in the biblical narrative anyway that this was due to the burning of fossil fuels to heat and electrify homes or to transport goods and people. And when I say, hold the phone on climate change alarmism, by the way, I don't mean to suggest, again, that the climate doesn't change. Of course, the climate changes, and sometimes it's alarming when it does, but there's a difference between being concerned that the climate is changing in ways that might be challenging for us or might be dangerous for us, uh, and being an alarmist. There's a big, big difference. Certainly, the climate changing is uh, not cause for us to be desperate or frantic in such a way that we stop getting married, we stop having babies uh, to prevent the changing of the climate. We definitely should not stop electrifying and heating our homes like some want us to, and we definitely should not stop transporting ourselves or uh, necessary goods, important goods and foods and supplies that are necessary for keeping the economy running. We definitely should not stop living just because we're afraid of dying. In short, we should not kill ourselves to save the planet from climate change. That is just folly. In other news, not to be reported this week on an otherwise healthy teenage boy who recently had six feet of blood clots removed from his legs. The young man is an athlete and he's undergoing a difficult recovery. It's scary stuff. Who can imagine having six feet of blood clots removed from your legs as a teenage boy? The whole business is highly disturbing and not least because the thing we're not supposed to ask these days is whether this young man's crisis is at all related to COVID and the vaccine. We were all being nudged and bullied by turn into getting, even for our children who were practically invulnerable where COVID was concerned. My big question in all of this is why are some people so incapable of fathoming scenarios in which COVID or the response to COVID might involve sinister behavior, sinister conspiracy. Why are some people just unable to even comprehend that? I don't understand. I don't I don't I don't get it. <laughs> you know, again, going back to the first five books of the Old Testament, I think some of us have not read closely the business about Pharaoh ordering midwives to kill newborn Hebrew boys. You know, the Egyptians felt very threatened by the descendants of Joseph's extended family who settled in the land uh, during the aforementioned 7 years of famine you know go back and read the story of Joseph and see Joseph toying with his brothers who had talked about killing him because he was daddy's favorite and then decided no 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 you know what's better than killing Joseph selling him into slavery that way we don't have his blood on our hands who knows what'll happen to him in slavery but we'll have some money and we won't feel bad like we would if we murdered him And so they sell him into slavery, and then he rises to the place of prominence, second only to Pharaoh in power and authority in Egypt, and yes, he gets Egypt ready for seven years of famine. So here come his brothers, and they don't recognize him because he's dressed like an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian, and they think he's long, long gone. The last place they would expect him to be is this position of power and authority over Egypt. And when he finally reveals himself, and he, you know he's not cruel to them. I think he toys with them a bit, but he is not cruel to them. He tests them. When he reveals himself to them, he says that what you meant for evil, God worked to the good. And then he tells them, go home, get your families, get our father, bring all the above, bring your households and our family here. And basically, Joseph takes them under his wing and says, I'll take care of you guys. Settle here. Well, then they do. And fast forward a few hundred years, the Hebrews have done very well. The sons and grandsons of Jacob of Israel have done very well in Egypt, and they've been very um, fruitful, and they've had a lot of kids and a lot of grandkids and a lot of great grandkids and so on and so forth, and it has really made the Egyptians nervous because the Egyptians don't go on like that. They don't have big families, and their kids don't have big families, and their grandkids don't have big families the way that the Hebrews do, and so then you get a pharaoh who's got a bright idea. He's going to order the midwives to kill Hebrew baby boys when they're born. If you see that it's a boy, kill it. And that's going to be this grand plan for reducing the threat, mitigating the threat, which the Hebrews pose to the Egyptians. And why just the baby boys? Why not the girls as well? Because the Hebrew girls, they can just marry Egyptians. And then the Egyptian men raising families with the Hebrew girls, they'll bring this in line. They'll make sure that there's an appropriate Uh, socialization and normalization of Egyptian values and Egyptian ways. But it's a wicked thing. It's a wicked thing for a pharaoh, for a king, for a leader of the people to say, let's kill the baby boys because they're going to grow up to be Hebrew men and they're going to raise families and they're going to raise them in a Hebrew way, particularly. I think some of us have just not Really, given much thought to that story and what it implies about the wider world and how it relates to problems of demographics and culture and society and government. I think some of us are far too naive because we haven't studied that very deeply. So, also think of in the New Testament, (laughs) think of Herod ordering the slaughter of every baby boy. Here again, we see boys are very threatening to tyrants and the godless. Uh, Herod orders the slaughter of every baby boy in Bethlehem under two years old because he's being told that the promised Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. The prophesied Messiah is perceived by him to be a potential rival. And this is a, a baby boy who is not going to be any kind of a threat to Herod for a long, long time, unless other people start gravitating to this baby boy and say, aha, yes, okay, let's get Herod out of here. And that's going to cause some some trouble for Herod in the near term before this boy has come of age. But again, I think it goes back to the whole business with Pharaoh, recognizing that Hebrew baby boys are going to grow up to be Hebrew men. They're going to grow up to be men someday, and then they're going to be vying for influence and jobs and a place in the economy and maybe a place in society. And they're going to be spreading their ideas and competing for influence. And we can't have that. The Egyptian men can't have that. They don't like it. They don't want it. Pharaoh definitely doesn't like it. Herod definitely doesn't like it in the case of the Messiah. But I say we should not be at all surprised if we find out that the same folks in our day who can and do loudly and long justify abortion of innocent little babies, boys and girls, could also justify other drastic measures to promote what they believe is in their interest or what furthers their vision of the good life on a global scale. In short, I think relative that, a lot of us are just terribly, terribly naive? And how can we protect ourselves or our children from these things if we refuse to admit that there is any danger whatsoever? I think we should be far less concerned about climate change. We should be far more concerned about the equivalent of an evil pharaoh or a wicked King Herod in our day. But lastly, to round off the news commentary for this episode, I'd like to talk just a minute about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II of England. Speaking of rulers, at 96 years old, her death this week really is the end of an era. She knew Winston Churchill, and she just very recently saw off her 16th prime minister. Recently, uh, Boris Johnson lost the confidence of the British people, and his government was Dissolved. And now a new Conservative Party government is being formed by a new female prime minister there in Great Britain. And a big question is whether we are going to see any more of the old chivalry of Europe in Western civilization. Time will tell. Maybe it's not the last we see of chivalry and of the old Europe. Maybe. But The passing of Queen Elizabeth II reminds me of both of my grandmothers, my Grandma Mullet and my Grandma Renew, passing away in recent years. The first, Grandma Mullet, in late 2019 in Montana. The second, my Grandma Renew, passing in the middle of 2020 in Florida. But both of them grew up during the Great Depression. They came of age during World War II. And they raised families through the turbulence and upheaval of the 1960s and 1970s. For us, for my generation, they provided a reference point to bygone times in a way that I think grounded our current troubles in the larger context, not just for us, but also for our children, their great-grandchildren. And it's a curious thing. I think of the man-hating complaints of modern feminism Uh, All three, my grandmothers and also Queen Elizabeth II, lived to ripe old ages and were honored to the last in their 80s and their 90s for crying out loud, Elizabeth II was Queen of England. And her being the second, you know, there was a first. And if you go back and read about Queen Elizabeth I, you know that she was not a wallflower. She was not somebody who... Was oppressed. She was a major figure in European politics, not just in the politics of England, but in the politics of Europe more broadly. But if you hear feminists go on, you'd think there had never been women in positions of authority or power before they came around, as if women had never been queens anywhere, especially in the West. And that's just clearly not true. That's clearly an ignorant position to take. It's also curious to me that for all the going on about how women have always been so mistreated in the West for all this time, that's why we need to overhaul society, to abolish gender and marriage and the traditional family. Both of my grandmothers lived longer than both of my grandfathers. And how could that be if women have been so poorly treated that these women lived longer than their husbands? It just doesn't make sense to me because I think it's nonsense. I think it's nonsense to say that women in the West have always had it so bad. The frank truth is that women and men have, by turns throughout history, behaved badly and been treated badly. And the reason for this is the sinfulness of mankind in general. It looks different when men misbehave than when women misbehave, but both alike can misbehave. Both alike can be mistreated, but both alike can misbehave. And we don't improve the situation by becoming antinomian or throwing out all tradition and all law and all customs. We don't make the situation better if we (laughs) come up with a whole host of new laws every day, invented whole cloth from our imaginations. And playing pretend like that It's going to get us what it's always gotten our ancestors, pain and heartache and deprivation and exposure to every kind of evil. And I don't think we want that. I personally don't want that. As for the main subject of this episode, I want to turn your attention to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. But before I do, let me give a warning. I'm going to be reading and talking about some things here that some parents might not want their children hearing. And I'm just going to tell you that up front, lest I offend anyone's sensibilities without at least a fair warning. That said, if I've given you enough time to pause this or say, all right, kids, go do something else. Uh, did you know <laughs> that there is an old Jewish rabbinical tradition that men under 30 years old were not allowed to read the book of Ezekiel. Did you know that? Uh, Also, speaking of feminism, did you know that women, according to this tradition, were not allowed to read Ezekiel at all, at any age? I did not know that until this past week. And I've been reading up on this fact or this claim, this allegation, what's this all about, after finding a reference to it in N.T. Wright's biography of the Apostle Paul. I'm about a quarter of the way through it, really enjoying it so far. It's very, very interesting stuff. But I did a bit of digging on this point in particular, and uh, I now know better. Why? <laughs> this was a tradition. Not to say that I agree with it, but I I can see where they were coming from. I <laughs> uh, still don't like it, but I want to talk about this tradition and what it's about and what to do with it. And I am over 30, so I guess I'm uh, in good shape to do that. And I gave you a bit of warning, and so if you care a great deal about that rabbinical tradition... You're welcome to follow it, but I'm not going to hold your hand in that regard or force you to, nor am I even necessarily going to encourage you to. Before we dig in to Ezekiel in particular, I just want to point out there's a very similar tradition I was aware of regarding Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs, which is basically to say the greatest song, the greatest song. That's what Song of Songs really means. Uh, Arend... Remmers, writes at BibleCenter.org about Song of Songs, and I quote, With Orthodox Jews, we find the old tradition that men under the age of 30 years ought not to read the Song of Songs. At the same time, the Jews have counted the book among the most holy ones and have accordingly estimated it very highly. This attitude becomes for us also. The Song of Songs is a book of Oriental poetry that is marked by special pictorial language. Here it is the pictorial language of love, full of flowery, sentimental, and sometimes very vivid expressions. But neither an Oriental nor a Hebrew would consider this book as a description of voluptuous passion. Such a judgment was reserved to a so-called Christian Western civilization, which up to the mid of the 20th century made a taboo of all that was sexual, compare with paragraph Hebrew poetry in the commentary on the book of Psalms. And I quote, "Uh, I knew about that, right? I knew about that. And maybe at some point we can do an episode talking more about Song of Songs and why uh, similar to the Sons of God question in Genesis 6, I think there are two categories of interpretations. The one, boring, and the second, exciting. And uh, I favor <laughs> consistently the exciting interpretation. Uh, <laughs> uh, Will uh, We'll not get into that just yet, but I would like to at some point go over that in greater depth. For now, I'll just make it a point that you have in the case of Song of Songs and apparently, as I learned this week, the book of Ezekiel, a rabbinical tradition, a conservative Jewish tradition that men under 30 years old should not read these books. And they have their reasons. And we can note those reasons, and I, I, I want to note those reasons, actually, even if I disagree with them, maybe especially if I disagree with them, because that helps me to understand how other people are relating to these topics or these subjects more broadly. But I'll tell you, in my effort to fact check uh, N.T. Wright, which is what I was doing when I went and looked this up, because I just couldn't believe it. I was like, what? You Men under 30 weren't allowed to read Ezekiel, women weren't allowed to read Ezekiel at all. Uh, In fact checking (laughs) this claim in the biography of Paul, I came across an article at sojo.net, which apparently is a website for sojourners, written by a certain Jana Reese, titled, Don't Read This Part of the Bible If You're Under 30 or a Woman. And she published that February 2012. Miss Reese, I should say, describes herself as a feminist, and even the tagline for sojourners where her article can be found reads as follows: quote, "Faith in action for social justice," end quote." Nevertheless, she says a very similar thing to what Arend Remmers wrote about Song of Songs when she writes, "Some of the great rabbis, Taught the book of Ezekiel with its strange visions and explicit sexual language should not be read by any Torah student under the age of 30. The symbolism of 30 was likely tied to Ezekiel's own reported age when he began receiving his prophetic visions. And I'll just stop right there and say, that's a pretty good reason to say you should be able to read it if you're over 30. If Ezekiel got the vision at 30, You know, it's like, well, okay, apparently God's okay with somebody 30 years old reading this, uh, you know, at a minimum, at a minimum, uh, sure. Continuing on, perhaps the rabbis felt that if Ezekiel was old enough to see these weird word pictures, 30 something men were considered mature enough to read about them. Not so for women, she writes. The traditional explanation for restricting Ezekiel to men was that women were too delicate to hear God using the F word. Chapter 16, though you won't find it in English translations, and too fragile to hear about slut girl Jerusalem bedding down with foreign males whose genitals were as enormous as donkeys. Chapter 23, end quote. So what did I tell you? pretty wild stuff, right? Pretty wild stuff. Uh, where to begin? <laughs> well, okay. I, I, I'll, I'll I'll put it this way. How about this? I read this article by a self-proclaimed feminist at a website that has a tagline all about social justice and wokeness and all that. And you can read her full article if you want to. I'll put a link in the write-up for this at com, which should be published tomorrow morning. But I'm reading all this and I'm thinking, boy, howdy, we have very delicate sensibilities. If Paul writes in the New Testament, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, and yet we want to put fences around certain passages and say, you can't read this. Where is that written? Where are we told? Where, where are we told to do any such thing? That's not biblical. That tradition, I think, is not good. And I think, our having sensibilities which we think are sufficient to censor God, is not good. Uh, whether you're conservative or whether you are a so-called progressive, that mindset is hubristic and foolish in my very strong opinion. But I went and I looked it up, Ezekiel 16, and I looked it up in a couple of different translations that I use more commonly, ESV. I was also curious, how does this get rendered in the KJV? And then I I, I had a thought. I, I don't read Hebrew, but I have a copy of the complete Jewish Bible translation in my possession. And then I thought I remembered biblegateway.com having that be one of the options in the drop down as you're choosing a translation to read the Bible in. And sure enough, sure enough, if I look up Ezekiel 16 in the complete Jewish Bible translation, it reads a little bit different. It reads a little bit different. So I'm going to read Ezekiel 16 in the complete Jewish Bible and we'll talk about it. How about that? Starting in verse 1. The word of Adonai came to me. Human being, make Yerushalayim, that is, Jerusalem, realize how disgusting her practices are. Say that Adonai Elohim is telling Yerushalayim, By origin and birth you are of the land of the Kinnanai. Your father was an MRI. And your mother was a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, nobody cut your umbilical cord, washed you in water to clean you off, rubbed salt on you, or wrapped you in cloth. No one seeing you had enough pity on you to do any of these things for you. No one had any compassion on you. Instead, you were thrown into an open field in your own filth on the day you were born. I passed by and saw you there, wallowing in your own blood, and as you lay in your blood, I said to you, Live! Yes, I said to you, as you lay in your blood, Live! I will increase your numbers, just like plants growing in the field, and you did increase. You developed, you reached puberty, your breasts appeared, and your hair grew long, but you were naked and exposed. Again, I passed by you, looked at you, and saw that your time had come, the time for love. So I spread my cloak over you to cover your private parts, and entered into a covenant with you, says Adonai Elohim. And you became mine. Then I bathed you in water, washed the blood off you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with an embroidered gown gave you fine leather sandals to wear, put a fine linen headband on your head and covered you with silk. I gave you jewelry to wear, bracelets for your hands, a necklace for your neck, a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, and a beautiful crown for your head. Thus you were decked out in gold and silver. Your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and richly embroidered cloth. You ate the finest flour, honey, and olive oil. You grew increasingly beautiful. You were fit to be a queen. Your fame spread among the nations because of your beauty, because it was perfect due to my having bestowed my own splendor on you, says Adonai Elohim. But you put your trust in your own beauty and began prostituting yourself because of your fame, soliciting everyone passing by and accepting all comers. You took your clothes and used them to decorate with bright colors the high places you made for yourself, and there you continued prostituting yourself. Such things shouldn't happen, and in the future they won't. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images with which you continued to prostitute yourself. You took your embroidered clothing and covered them. You set my olive oil and my incense in front of them. And you took my food, which I had given you, my fine flour, olive oil, and honey that I had given you to eat, and set it in front of them to give a pleasant aroma. That, is how it was, says Adonai Elohim. Moreover, your sons and daughters, whom you bore me, you took and sacrificed for them to devour. Were these fornications of yours a casual matter, killing my children, handing them over, and setting them apart for these idols? In all your disgusting practices and fornications, you never remembered the condition you were in when you were in, Young, naked, exposed and wallowing in your own blood. So after all this wickedness of yours, woe, woe to you, says Adonai Elohim. You built platforms and made yourself high places in every open space. You built your high places at every street corner, turning your beauty into an abomination, spreading your legs for every passerby and multiplying your acts of fornication. You had sex with your big-membered Egyptian neighbors and engaged in fornication over and over just to provoke me. So now I have stretched out my hand over you, diminished your ration of food, and put you at the mercy of those who hate you, the daughters of the plishtim, who find your lewd behavior revolting. Still unsatisfied, you act like a whore with the people of Ashur. Yes, you fornicated with them and were still not satisfied. You multiplied your acts of fornication with the land of traders, the Kazdim, and still weren't satisfied. You are so weak-willed, says Adonai Elohim. You do all these things behaving like a shameless whore, building your platforms on every stork corner, making your high places in every open space, and yet... You aren't like a whore because you scorn getting paid. Here is a wife who commits adultery, who goes to bed with strangers instead of her husband. But also, instead of receiving gifts like every other prostitute, you give gifts to all your lovers. You bribe them to come to you from all over the place and have sex with you. You are the opposite of other women. You solicit the fornication. You aren't solicited, and you pay them. They don't pay you. You're the opposite. All right, you whore, listen to the word of Adonai. Adonai Elohim says, Because your filth has been poured out and your privates exposed through your acts of fornication with your lovers, and because of all the idols of your disgusting practices, and because of the blood of your children which you gave them, therefore, look, I am going to gather all your lovers to whom you have been so very nice, all the ones you hate, ride right along with all the ones you love. I will gather them against you from all over the place and expose your private parts to them so that they will see you completely naked. I will pronounce on you the sentence that applies to women who commit adultery and murder. I will bring on you the death decreed for furious jealousy. Yes, I will hand you over to them, and they will make a ruin of your platforms. Tear down your high places strip you of your clothes, take away your jewels, and leave you naked and exposed. They will also bring up a mob against you who will stone you to death and hack you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses to the ground and execute judgments against you in the presence of many women. I will make you stop fornicating, and you will never again pay for a lover. Yes, I will satisfy my fury against you, but after that, my jealousy will leave you, and I will calm down. And no longer be angry. Because you didn't remember the condition you were in when you were young, but enraged me with all these things, therefore, I will bring the consequences of your ways on your own head, says Adonai Elohim. You committed these obscenities in addition to all your other disgusting practices. Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb against you, like mother, like daughter. Yes. You are your mother's daughter, who despises her husband and children. You are the sister of your sisters, who despise their husbands and children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite. Moreover, your older sister is Shamron, who lives at your left, she and her daughters. And your younger sister, living at your right, is Sodom, with her daughters. You didn't merely live by their ways and act according to their disgusting practices, But in a very short time, you acted more corruptly than they in all your ways. As I live, says Adonai Elohim, your sister Sodom has not done neither she nor her daughters as much evil as you have done, you and your daughters. The crimes of your sister Sodom were pride and gluttony. She and her daughters were careless and complacent, so they did nothing to help the poor and needy. They were arrogant and committed disgusting acts before me so that when I saw it, I swept them away. Shamran did not commit even half as many sins as you did. You committed many more disgusting acts than your sisters. In fact, in comparison with all the disgusting acts you have committed, they seem innocent. But you too must bear your disgrace, for by your passing judgment that your sisters were innocent, through your having committed sins worse than theirs, they are shown to be more righteous than you. So be ashamed and bear the disgrace you deserve for making your guilty sisters seem innocent. I will end their exile, the exile of Sodom and her daughters, the exile of Shamron and her daughters, and the exile of your captives there among them, so that you can bear your own shame and experience the disgrace you deserve for all you have done to shield them from feeling their own guilt. Your sisters, Sodom with her daughters, and Shamron with her daughters, will return to their previous condition, and you, with your daughters, will return to your previous condition. When you were so proud, you spoke with contempt about your sister Sodom before your own wickedness was exposed, but now the daughters of Aram mock you, as do her neighbors, and the daughters of the Plishtim, on every side, are repulsed by you. You have brought it all on yourself with your depravities and disgusting practices, says Adonai. For here is what Adonai Elohim says, I will do to you as you have done. You treated the oath with contempt by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, I will remember the covenant I made with you when you were a girl and will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your behavior and be ashamed of it as you receive your older and younger sisters and make them your daughters, even though the covenant with you does not Cover that, and I will reestablish my covenant with you. Then you will know that I am Adonai, so that you will remember and be so ashamed that you will never open your mouth again. So shamed will you be when I have forgiven you all that you have done, says Adonai Elohim. Amen. Amen. Hufta. <sighs> Amen and hufta. As Vody Bauckham would say, don't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> and what did I tell you? There are reasons why women were not allowed to read this. In conservative Jewish tradition, there are reasons why men younger than 30 were not allowed to read this. But I think that's mistaken. And someone correct me if I'm wrong. Somebody make the argument, explain to me how I'm mistaken, if I'm mistaken, but I do not find that to be biblical. I don't think that that's correct. I think all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. And someone might say, ah, well, this is man of God. It doesn't say woman of God. This is man of God. Mm -hmm. This is man of God. It doesn't say boy of God or girl of God. All right. Well, that might be your reasoning, but I don't think that follows. And I don't see anything at the beginning here, and I might have missed it. Maybe I missed it, where it says, must be 30 years old and a man to read this. Actually, truth be told, I think there would probably be a great deal more propriety if we read this. Far from inciting lewdness, I think reading this might provide a check on foolish ideas that God is ignorant about these things, or that the church is ignorant about these things, that Christians should be ignorant and naive about these things. This is really serious stuff. It's very, very serious stuff. And God is not squeamish. We are. And so in a sense, we make it appear as though God is squeamish like we are to justify our squeamishness. And it is not so. I'll, I'll refer you back to where I have recorded episodes about being against VeggieTales or not liking particularly VeggieTales. And why? Because VeggieTales takes all the sex and violence out of the Bible. And I think that is us playing holier than God. And that is a very dangerous game to play. There is a difference between being pure and being a prude. And we should not suppose that us being prudish is humble or righteous or godly or wise. You can't get purer than the Lord God Almighty. And if he's given us these things to read, where is it written that we should not read them until we're 30 years old and a man? By that point, odds are high with hormones being high and running high. You've already made a great many mistakes. But if you've read this and you've been sobered by it, maybe you are more careful and maybe you take more seriously That God wants marriage between a husband and his wife to be a sacred thing. Maybe you take more seriously that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and that that's an exclusive relationship and that you shouldn't just be trying out this girl and that girl and another girl and who pleases me more and uh, I'll keep my options open in case someone I like better comes along. No, find a young lady you can lead and love well because god is very upset <laughs> at the way that jerusalem israel has behaved worse than a prostitute and notice here like the the way this is all described is very intentional obviously because god's not doing anything by accident but god says that jerusalem israel is worse than a prostitute. You would say, wow, prostitute, man, that's strong language. Yeah, well, this is a serious offense. It's a serious situation. But God says, you're worse than a prostitute because at least prostitutes get paid. It makes some sense that they're doing what they're doing because they're getting paid for what they're doing. Well, maybe they needed the money, right? Maybe they couldn't buy food. Maybe they couldn't pay rent. And at least a prostitute is getting paid you're worse than a prostitute. You're like the opposite of a prostitute. You're actually paying these men to come to you, and you're going to pay for it, God says. Now, it's interesting. Some are very squeamish about this kind of language, this kind of subject matter, but I did a little search, actually. I was I was very curious about usage, frequency of usage of... <laughs> <laughs> the word whore. <laughs> um, I don't mean to laugh, but I i know people who are loath to use the word whore. And it's not to say I don't appreciate their concern with propriety, but I do think that sometimes there is just nothing for it like using the right word, mot juste, as the French say, Just the right word. Just so. La main juste. Sometimes there is no better word. As God's word here in Ezekiel makes clear, there is no better word than whore. The word is whore. Or what will we say? Oh, you know, God, you really should have used a different word there. Ooh, careful. That might be a conservative position. That might be a very proper position. That doesn't mean that's a wise position. It doesn't mean that that's a humble position. If God used the word whore here, that was exactly the right word, and no other word would have done as well. Now, of course, the word whore is the English word, but it's not translated into English for no reason, and that's important. But I was curious, because you can look on books.google.com slash ngrams at the frequency of words. Google Books scans all these old books and does speech recognition or word recognition on the pages and then keeps track over a timeline based on when the book was published, when the periodical was published, how frequently certain words have appeared over time And so just for anyhow, I navigated over to this website and I typed in whore and then I expanded the search because I actually was able to expand it all the way back to 1500. I could probably expand it further, but I don't know how much. And so I expanded the search back to 1500. So we're talking 519 years because it only goes up to 2019, 519 years of charting frequency of the word whore. There is a huge spike in usages in the year 1531. Uh, 15, 1530 is, you know, right right around there. 1526, it's like 00000000000 percent And then something happens between the year 1526, 1527, 1528, still zero. 1529 starts to jump. And by year 1530, from 1530 to 1537, 0.002 plus percent. Something's going on in the 1530s. And what's interesting, I did just a quick search, just, and this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but forgive me. What was happening in 1530? So I looked it up. I looked up 1530. 1530, the Augsburg Confession is presented to Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. Hmm, interesting. Also, too, date unknown, they don't know precisely when, but in 1530, the first complete edition of the Zurich Bible, Ulrich Zwingli's translation into German, printed by Christoph Froschauer, is published. Augsburg Confession, for those of you who think that sounds somewhat familiar, but you can't remember quite what that is. It's also known as the Augustan Confession or the Augustana from its Latin name, Confessio Augustana. It's the primary confession of faith of the Lutheran Church, one of the most important documents of the Protestant Reformation. That was presented to Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. And could that be related to why all of a sudden there's like more instances of the use of the word whore uh, than any time since, according to Google Books. I don't know. You tell me. Uh, Also, there's another, like the next biggest uh, spike comes about 1592, between 1592 and 1600. All of a sudden, we're using the word whore a lot in English. But then it drops off, right? It drops off pre- precipitously, like a lot, a lot. And it spikes again in 1619. Interestingly enough, hmm, could that be at all related to the importation of slaves to the American colonies? I don't know. I don't know. There were a lot of transported prostitutes as well. To the Americas around the same time, they were brought in as indentured slaves or indentured servants, uh, as you're more likely to see them referred to, or as wives for indentured servants, male indentured servants who had been brought to the colonies. Uh, Prostitutes were just rounded up, and uh, orphans as well, unattended children, criminals, political uh, troublemakers in the British Isles, and they were just transported here to the American colonies. Also to, you know, that's where Australia comes from is a whole bunch of that. Uh, and then, you know, the usage of whore drops off quite a lot. And then it spikes up again in about 1640, but not quite as much. And then it drops off again and then it spikes up again in 1660. And then it drops off and it spikes again in about the mid 1670s. And, and then it just kind of like it, it stair steps down and then lo and behold, 1760s, 1764, 1768 is the next spike or it's just a gradual rise through the 1700s until you get to the 1770s and the Declaration of Independence. And then all of a sudden it starts dropping off again and it just kind of mellows out. And the low point in the intervening years has been 19. 10s, 1920s, it really, really dropped down and it came up just a little bit in the 1930s on into the 1950s, 1960s, and it's just hovered in a very low state. And then what's interesting, what's really, really interesting is in the 2010s on up to the present, we have seen it rise again quite a lot and still not anywhere near you know, you know, 1590s or the 1530s, nowhere near that. Still not quite as high uh, by a quarter as 1619. But we're getting close to 1760s, 1770s territory. Like we're we're getting we're we're trending that way to more usage of the word whore in English. Just a fun fact, very interesting to me what does that pretend right if you look at what was going on with faithlessness i think that's really what it comes down to is faithlessness in the 1530s in the 1590s what was going on in the 1590s what was going on in 1619 what was going on around the time of the american revolution i think we're headed for a a big big upset and we might want to be reading Ezekiel. I think Ezekiel has some things for us and more to the point. If it seems as though we as Christians are somewhat at a loss to be able to understand what's going on, what we should do about it. Maybe it's not that we're not reading our Bibles enough. It's what parts of our Bibles are we reading And how? And are we really listening? Are we really paying attention to what God has revealed about Himself and who He's called us to be and how previous generations of God's people have related to Him and how He's related to them? What are God's promises? How does He go about fulfilling His promises? Can that comfort us? Yes. Also, does God bring judgment on faithlessness? And the answer is, Yes. And I think it's pretty clear if you just even look at <laughs> you might laugh, but if you even just look at the trending on usage of the word whore in English, I think we're headed for judgment. Just just based on that alone. I you know, I don't need Google Trends to tell me that, but I think it bears out that we are headed to a major major upset socially, culturally, politically. And I do think that it relates to even the news items that I was talking about at the top of this episode. Also, too, I think we should not be more proper than God. And when I say that, I don't mean we should go around calling everyone a whore. And I don't mean that we should be just talking, however, and being totally impolite and inconsiderate. No, I don't mean that. But we absolutely should not be censoring God. At a bare minimum, we should not be censoring God. I'm convinced of that. I think also, too, I mean, just imagine, imagine a scenario in which, you know, as very often I like to do, I like to listen to audio books. Let's suppose you're listening to an audio book of the Bible and further suppose with me, like with some audio books, they're read by the author. Imagine you were listening to God reading the audio book form of the Bible. This is his book. It's about him. All scripture is breathed out by God. And these men who wrote down the books of the Bible, the books that make it into our canon, they weren't writing just out of their imagination. They weren't just making stuff up. No, as Christians, we hold that God inspired the inerrant word and it's for our benefit for us to study it, to read it, to grapple with it, to seek his Will, to know his will, to know him. But imagine the Bible on audiobook as read by the author. And imagine with me, if you will, the gall, the temerity, the audacity, the sheer hubris, if someone were going in and editing before publication and putting in beep, 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 beep. beep. And you've got God speaking to Israel, his people, and you're trying to listen, like, what's he saying? I don't know. And all you're hearing is beep, 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 like the FBI releasing documents for (laughs) justification if they're going after former President Donald Trump, raiding Mar-a-Lago, and it's so heavily redacted, it's like, this is not this is not <laughs> accountability. You are not being held accountable if you redact 90% of the document. No. Dare we do such a thing with the Almighty? I mean, first of all, do we have a command to do such? Second of all, why do we think that's a good idea? How, wh- what good end do you, we think will come of that? I would love to hear if you've got strong ideas that disagree with mine, or you've got some other reasons besides what I can think of, besides us being overprotective, being too delicate in our sensibilities, being soft and yes, hubristic, let me know. Reach out, drop me a line. I want to hear all about it. Also too, this being all the time I've got for this episode, I want to tell you I'm hoping soon, perhaps in our next episode, to talk through a timeline of scandals related to Doug Wilson. And some of these scandals, I think, are just plain silly. Some of them, I don't know that I trust the way that they're presented in context by this certain organization or website or Facebook page, which is trying to make them known. Uh, And I'll explain my reasons why Some of them, if true, are deeply, deeply concerning, to put it mildly, if true, but therein lies the big question, if true. Uh, I think it's important because I do like Doug Wilson, and I do like Canon Press, and I do like Canon Plus. I think it's important to treat this, and I wanted to do this episode, talking through Ezekiel, some of the language that is in Ezekiel, uh, before we talk about some of the scandals related to Doug Wilson, because... I think a lot of the scandal related to Doug Wilson has to do with uh, very similar themes to why men under 30 and women, not at all, have been allowed uh, You know, a, a differing set of standards with regards to Ezekiel than what I find to be appropriate. I'll put it that way. Women not being allowed to read Ezekiel, where is that written? Where, where is that written that women should not be allowed to read Ezekiel, except in your your personal opinion? Oh, it's your opinion. Cool, not mine. Men under thirty shouldn't be allowed to read Ezekiel. Oh, what was that again? Was it did, did you say that that's also your opinion? Okay, cool. That's no, not my opinion. Uh, why should I defer to your opinion? I've got my own. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, King Arthur and his Knights of the Round Table. Come up to this castle and uh they call up to the guy on the ramparts asking if his liege lord would like to join them on their quest for the holy grail. And it's uh, you know, I think John Cleese speaking in a French accent, but he says, uh he's already got one. (laughs) You know, it's like, wait, what? He's already got one. What do you mean he's already got one? You know, like, were you listening to the question? You're just, you're, you're just mocking us. Yes, of course. Um, in any event, (laughs) I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening until next time. God bless.